rather than the wealthy affording stability and the poor being unable to afford it, being forced to be renters, being forced to get into foreclosures. Instead here, everyone gets an equal chance to buy the stability that they want in their lives while having the opportunity to access goods that everybody else currently holds. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can be to foretell populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. We're just over 500 days into Trump's presidency now, and I think it's worth to take stock even at the risk of depressing you and myself. The first six months after he was elected were scary because we really didn't know where anything would be headed, but they were also full of the promise of resistance, full of the promise of most Americans coming together to really show that we do not stand for this kind of politics. The next six months after that saw a little bit of moderation in the administration, the departure of people like Steve Bannon from the White House, but also the slow capture of the Republican Party by Trump's people. It was a bit of a mixed, murky picture. The last six months, in my mind, have been the most unmitigatingly disastrous. We've seen the administration radicalize, making extreme claims about Trump being beyond the law, attacking rules and norms of a democratic system in a daily fashion, leading truly inhumane policies like separating children from their parents at the border. And the worst thing about these past six months is that any sense that this is Trump standing up against institutions we all value has gone out of the window. The only way that it's being framed now is Trump versus Mueller, Democrats versus Republican. Any sense of independent value of the institutions which unite us as Americans is increasingly going out of the window. Trump is being normalized. And it feels like we're losing the battle for any form of social consensus around parts of the American form of government and the Constitution. And so I feel this is a moment of high power. Well, it's difficult to transition from that, but we have to keep thinking about how we can offer the kinds of political alternatives that will actually help to beat Donald Trump, to beat the populist wave around the world. And one of the more interesting, one of the more uh, out there ideas to do that in recent months is a really interesting new book by Glenn Weil and Eric Posner called Radical Markets, Uprooting Capitalism and Democracy for a Just Society. And I had a great conversation with Glenn Weil about the economic roots of the current populist crisis, the kind of form of inequality we have, and how we can actually, according to him, use the market in radical new ways in order to try and remedy this inequality and rekindle growth. Uh, it's a really wide-ranging, fascinating conversation. I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome to the podcast, Glenn. Thanks a lot. It's good to be here with you. So, you know, on this podcast, we talk a lot about the relative roots of populism in the economy and in more cultural kinds of issues. Um, I get the sense that a lot of economists think it's more about economic issues. Is that true of you? I actually think it's pretty balanced between the two of them, and I actually view them as two sides of the same coin. I really think what's happened in recent years is there's been a discrediting of established forms of authority. And on the economic side, that's come from a lot of things that leaders 
Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, et cetera, promises that they made not really coming true for people on the ground. And at the same time, you've had an increasing turn in democracies to judges or supranational authorities that don't have that much democratic legitimacy to resolve conflicts between minorities and majorities. And that has, I think, not worked out the way that people intended or we haven't been able to rely on those authorities as securely as they promised. And so I think in both the economic arena and in this more cultural minority-majority arena, we've put a lot of faith in sort of technocrats and authorities that haven't seemed to have fulfilled that faith from the public's perspective. So I really view those as just two examples of the same thing. That's a nice unifying perspective, right? So a lot of the time we think about the crisis of liberal democracy as an outcome of what political scientists would call outcome legitimacy, right? Performance legitimacy. People like the system because they see it deliver. It was true in the 50s and 60s and so on. And so then the question is, well, which kind of performance do people really care about? Is it sort of feeling affirmed in, you know, the sense of the political community and so on? And that might be challenged by greater equality for historically marginalized groups. Or is it really about the economy? And that's challenged by the rise of inequality or by income stagnation. And I suppose what you're saying is that actually the problem really is one of authority. That it's not just that performance is lacked, but that experts have promised, hey, elect me and I'm going to fix immigration. And you know what? Even though publics have consistently preferred, at least in continental Europe, lower rates of immigration, actually, it's really damaging to lower rates of immigration in various ways, and it's hard to do, and most governments haven't done that. And it's the same kind of story about the economy. Is that? Is that well, yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, you think about the, even putting aside the immigration issue, there was a promise from sort of the judicial activism in the United States in the 1960s, and to an important extent from the European Union, that there were contentious minority-majority issues, whether they were over race, abortion, in the United States, in Europe, more things relating to various types of regulation, immigration, etc. And these supranational bodies were going to somehow come to a widely acceptable, fair judgment about this that was largely impartial. And I think people just don't feel that that's what's happened. I think they felt that they were taking sides and sides that reflected a particular sort of cultural perspective. And that's gone in both directions. I mean, we've seen that with judicial activism on the right as well, or protections of the wealthy by the European Union that felt illegitimate. But in all these cases, I think there was a promise of some dispassionate resolution of these issues that wouldn't require politics. And that dispassionate resolution sort of hasn't worked out either on the economic or the cultural sphere. So. so let's go one step back, because the easy thing about the performance legitimacy story is that it is reasonably easy, not straightforward, but reasonably easy to explain why it is that we had huge economic growth in the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s, for example, and we didn't so much in the decades after that. And certainly there's a story on the cultural realm where for all of the great injustices it entails, it's relatively straightforward. If the only people who are truly included in the political system are members of the dominant majority and you don't threaten that kind of set of privileges, well, then they're not going to be threatened. They're going to be happy with the system, right? So you can tell a story about what happened, which is not difficult to understand. I mean, if you're saying, well, really, these are just different manifestations of elite failure, I guess we mean the question is, well, why is it that elites worked comparatively well in past decades, and they haven't been working very well for the last 20, 30 years? 
I think it's because of the lack of innovation. I think it was precisely the success of elites that has led to their ultimate failure. Antitrust policy is an area that I've worked on a lot, and I think that's a great example. Antitrust used to be an issue that had a deep root in populist sentiment. The public was very aware of it. It was in the newspapers all the time. And elites were executing a script that was largely written in communication with the public. The problem is that business changed, technology changed, and elites said, don't worry, leave it to us. We'll keep up with those changes. You don't have to focus on it. And the problem is that that didn't work out so well. We saw a huge rise in market power, which was what antitrust was supposed to be able to deal with. And uh, so I think that that largely discredited that promise that elites made, but it was because elites were overconfident. They didn't think they needed to constantly be trying to keep up with what was going on. They thought they had it under control. So I hear perhaps contrasting stories, I may not be understanding right, which say that at the beginning you were talking about things like, say, the U.S. Supreme Court and saying, well, you know, they really instituted forms of political and cultural change top down by saying, we're going to resolve this contentious issue. And then there were people who felt that that was illegitimate because it didn't reflect their preferences. On the monopoly story, you seem to be telling something like the inverse story, which is to say that elites and the people actually came to a set of agreements about what you needed to do in order to contain the problem of monopoly. That worked quite well, you know, given the structure of the economy in 1960. But they were actually attached to the sort of legalistic detail of that arrangement under these certain kinds of circumstances where we recognize a monopoly and are willing to act against it. As corporations changed, as companies like Google came about, looked very different, they were no longer able to deal with that new kind of problem. But that's sort of the opposite of the other problem, right? It's a problem actually not of elites running ahead of the people. It's a problem of elites not responding to changes. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting contrast you bring up. But I actually think that in some ways those issues are actually very consistent, which is that the elites failed to constrain their area of discretion to something where they truly had differential expertise. And they instead either claimed to be able to handle things that they weren't able to claim do using that expertise and became overconfident in that. Or in the case of the top-down change from the judges, the issue was not that the elites were using a rhetoric, convincing the public, changing things at a broad level. It's that they treated as a judicial matter, as a matter of details of law, things that were contentious political decisions. So one way of putting this is that there's a set of areas where you think elites actually were supposed to be in charge in conversation with popular preferences, like dealing with monopolies. And they didn't realize that this was an ongoing challenge. So they thought, okay, we're done with that. We know how to do this. And we have certain agencies that deal with certain kinds of mergers. But basically, we problem figured out, let's not dwell on this. So they failed to respond to changes in that realm. And instead, they said, well, what problem should we turn to next? And they started solving problems that they're actually not set up to solve. And they didn't communicate with the public about it as a matter of policy. Instead, they viewed it as a matter of technical, legal, you know, areas that really couldn't be resolved through a purely legal process. Increasingly, they took over and they failed to resolve it in this technocratic way that they claimed to be doing. So perhaps that's actually... So split the conversation in two, which is let's first of all think about the areas where 
you know, elites once had the right answers and they got complacent about them. They didn't change yeah. much and they sort of became entrenched, yeah. right? I mean, I think in a certain way, when I think of the history of European social democratic parties, it's a quite similar phenomenon. I mean, right now we're talking more about the regulatory agencies, perhaps in place in the United States, but it's very similar of those political movements as well, where in 1950, 1960s, social democratic parties had a vision of the future. This is how we want to transform society, we want to complete the welfare state, and so on. And, you know, by 1980 or so, they started to be essentially conservative forces who were no longer thinking how under changing circumstances is the welfare state going to look best. They basically said, well, everything is great and we're just going to defend this. And so they both had very little to say to voters and they probably didn't understand how changed economic circumstances really required certain kind of structural changes. I think labor law is a great example of this. You know, labor law is the basic framework for it is that the only type of job is one that's appropriate to sort of like a white middle-aged dude hammering on things. And a lot of other types of people started to come into the labor force over the course of the 20th century to some extent because of social democratic policies. And they weren't really adapted to deal with that. I mean, they didn't then try to say, okay, look, we're still worried about the power of companies. We still don't want to let them run free. But on the other hand, we have a really different way labor force and we have really different technological demands. You know, when people are, for example, in an Uber and they're sitting around their house waiting to get a call, you know, people can't earn minimum wage for just sitting around their house doing things and then, you know, getting called out for one moment. So that's not the right framework to think about a minimum wage there. But on the other hand, you can't just abandon people to the market because we know that firms have huge amounts of power and you need to address that. So I think that that lack of innovation, the lack of keeping up with what was going on in society and the complacency and the sense of trusting in them really undermined their authority. So let's delve into this topic for a moment. What is the right solution there? If you have in Korean, Uber, I think, is always a metaphor for all of these other kinds of yeah. similar activities, right? In a gig economy in which there isn't as stark an employer-employee relationship as you had in more traditional firms where people can you know, work quite flexibly, how do you allow some of the obvious advantages of that kind of flexibility while still protecting workers in a sensible way? One thing that I think should be done immediately is thinking about competition among employers. Because competition among employers has been almost entirely neglected by existing antitrust policy. And it's a far bigger problem than is competition among the producers of products. But that's just a starting point. You know, what you really need to do... Well, but before we yeah. jump, so what do you mean by that? I know that in your, in your new book, for example, you talk about the agricultural sector and how when certain suppliers of agricultural machinery buy up all of the, the, the stores and, 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 and mechanic shops and so on in local areas, suddenly they are the only person who can employ people of a particular kind of skill within driving distance. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example that came up uh, yesterday at a meeting with some competition authorities. There was a major merger in the steel industry in Europe recently, and the competition authorities required some divestitures of steel plants in order to allow that merger to go through. But they thought only about the effects on the consumers. But of course, the steel industry is a huge employer in Europe, and especially in some parts of Germany, it's, it's really a large share of employment. And there was essentially no thought to whether they divest, say, 
all their plants in Italy to a new firm, but then keep all of them in Germany and France, right. or whether that's spread out. And so it could have a huge impact on the labor market, even though you address the problem of uh, product market power. So just to draw this out, because I think it may not be intuitive, you want competition both among different producers in order to drive down prices, because if I'm the only producer, I can set, you know, more or less whatever price I want. But if there's two or three other producers, then if I set too high a price, they'll underbid me, everybody will buy the product, so I don't get to do that. But you also want to make sure there's competition for labor. Because if I'm the only person who can employ somebody of a particular skill, they can either go and do some really unqualified piece of labor, or I get to employ them at whatever price, perhaps a higher price than them going to work at McDonald's, but not a high enough price for the amount of skill and so on they have. Now, why doesn't the same set of solutions solve the problem at the same time. And let me sort of set out how I understand this as a non-economist and you'll correct me where I go wrong. So the idea is you might have one big European steel conglomerate that now basically owns all of the steel plants in Europe. And that might not be a problem for price competition because as long as I have a relatively free trade arrangement, I might have a huge Chinese steel conglomerate that produces steel in China and a huge American one that produces steel in America. And as long as transport costs are low enough, they can all compete on the European market. So European consumers still pay reasonable prices for steel. But if you are a skilled person in the steel industry, the only way to now be employed with a skill by anybody other than this one company is to move to China or move to America. And obviously there's huge obstacles to that. Is that the, is that the basic idea? I think that's a very eloquent way of putting it. And I think that that's been a major problem that that issue has been almost totally ignored by our antitrust authorities. And I think anyone, if they just reflect on their own lives, will realize that there's much more of a problem of market power among employers than there is among sellers of products. I mean, take this microphone that we're using right now to record this. If they change the price of this significantly, I bet there's about a dozen other microphones that we could have bought to record for our audience. And probably you don't even know what brand this is, or at least certainly I don't know what brand this is. But, you know, if our wages got cut by 10%, are we going to go get another job? And I think that's true of most people. And the real reason is that you have to like your job, but also your employer has to like you. And finding a match like that is really hard, mm. and it makes the market really thin. And for that reason, the power that people have in that situation is far greater. And that's something that since Karl Marx, we've been talking about that issue. So let me ask you a sort of simplistic question here, which is, well, you know, when I think of car engineers in Italy in the 60s, right? I mean, there was obviously a, a couple of car companies in Italy in the 60s, but really it was Fiat, right? That was the big national car producer. And there's equivalents of that in many other European countries. France, it's sort of Renault and Citroën, but it was mostly Renault, right? And yet they commanded pretty high wages. And the answer to that doesn't seem to me to be that they could go and work for a different car manufacturer. It's that they had a pretty powerful union that bargained on their behalf. So why is it that the solution to this is anti-monopoly policy, not allowing the merger of a steel company, which might have other kinds of economic benefits, as opposed to encouraging strong unions? So I don't think it's either or, and I think it depends on industry. The evidence that we have strongly suggests that actually the concentration has gotten far worse over time, despite some images that we might have of the 1950s and 60s. Of course, 
our memories of a period are always shaped by the leading brands of that period. Probably 50 years from now, people will think the only companies that existed were Google and Facebook and so forth. And of course, that isn't true of our present world. So I think the way we understand the past is maybe not quite what the data tell us, which is that concentration has been increasing. But I don't think antitrust can be the answer on its own, because certainly in some industries, and I don't think the car industry is really one of them, but in some industries such as Facebook, Google, a lot of the tech, it is just going to be infeasible to have a good service with a lot of competition in that area. And so you're going to need other solutions to that problem, and unions are a natural one. But that's another area where law just hasn't kept up to date with the natures of the problems that people are facing. And actually on Wednesday in the Netherlands, they established the first data labor union trying to help people bargain for a fair share of the value created by their data. So mm -hmm. that's an interesting, innovative, new sort of a solution that deals with the present problems rather than just clinging to the jobs of the past. Why doesn't that happen naturally at the moment? Which is to say, I, I understand, obviously, the network effect. As you pointed out in an article that was put very well to the senator when Mark Zuckerberg had his hearing, that he said, well, look, you know, I buy a, a Chevy, I don't like it, um, I can go buy a Toyota, right? For he didn't say Toyota, he said some other American yeah. brand, which yeah, is a senator. Course. But, you know, if I'm on Facebook and I start to be unhappy with a product in certain ways, which equivalent product can I go to? I mean, why isn't it possible for for a competitor to come in and understand that obviously market entry is difficult because it'll be a boring place unless millions of other people have already signed up and say, hey, I am actually going to remunerate people for joining this service. And the more clicks you get, the more likes you get, the more photos you upload, the more money we're going to pay you every month. Wouldn't people over time actually transfer away from Facebook? Well, there are some companies that are doing that and they've had some limited success. But I think that the difficulty of data portability and the difficulty of many people coordinating their movement away makes that very challenging. I think that, and this is where law comes in, the GDPR regulations that went into effect yesterday, these are European data protection regulations that make it much easier to port your data to a different firm or to erase your data, to view it, et cetera. These will help in the process of mm. facilitating that sort of competition, but they won't do it alone because you also need some form of collective organization to help people coordinate. And that's where I think a modern form of a union is an appealing way to think about that. Why is it that our economies have stagnated? So I show this in my book, you show this in your book. I think it's now pretty widely understood that there's been a real stagnation of living standards for a lot of people. And that's driven by stagnating economic growth, stagnating productivity, and so on and so forth. But also rising inequality, which is something we both focus on a lot as well. Yes, indeed. And so the question is, what is the driver of that? And I feel like there's sort of three or four large-scale economic theories about that. And one of them might just say that there's something inherent to the way that technology evolves that, you know, this is sort of the, the Gordon theory, that basically the big inventions that really have a huge impact on, on people's living standards and productivity were made in the 19th and early 20th century, and we just don't have those kinds of gains to be made anymore. There's a bunch of other theories that are more about the structure of the financial markets and so on. And you, I understand, want to focus a little bit more on the monopoly piece as one of the drivers of this. So talk me through, you know, what the different plausible theories are for what has produced this economic stagnation and why, in your mind, monopoly is a relatively underappreciated one of them. Yeah. So the way I think about this is that, you know, if you look at 
the you know Thatcher, Reagan, Milton Friedman type view of the world, they would say, look, if you tax the economy heavily, it will slow economic growth because you need to give people rewards for work. And actually, I agree with that. The problem is that it's not only official income taxes or sales taxes or value-added taxes that are the taxes on the economy. In many states in the United States, rather than taxing liquor, the government sets up a government monopoly and taxes liquor that way by raising the prices through that monopoly. And of course, you could do the same thing. You could have a hiring cartel where everyone has to get work through some government union. And then that union could just take a bunch of the wages of workers. And that would be a tax on the economy as well. So we have to understand that monopolies and monopsonies, those are monopolies of, of employers that we were talking about earlier. These can tax the economy just as much as governments can, and sometimes more. Hmm. And what the evidence that we have emerging in recent years suggests is that in the 1950s and 60s, government used to take, I don't know, 30, 35% of the economy, and private monopolies used to take about a 20% markup. Nowadays, about 70, 75% is the average markup in the economy. Hmm. And, you know, taxes have fallen somewhat from the government. So, you know, we were told we were getting lower taxes, but actually we were getting higher taxes. It's just that all those taxes were going to these monopolies and monopsonies rather than to the government. And so my view is actually very simple. It's very consistent with the neoliberal view that you know taxes are the problem. The problem is the neoliberals didn't appreciate that businesses could tax the economy just as much as anyone else. And in fact, that's what Adam Smith said in his time, most taxes were actually collected by the East India Company. So mm -hmm. he railed against corporations and the taxes that they impose. And we need to recapture that understanding. So just to help me understand what the relative importance of this is to other factors in the economy. On the podcast before, as some listeners may recall, we talked about a report by the Obama White House that basically said productivity had increased over the past 30 years at the speed at which it increased in the immediate post-war era. The average American would make about double what we make right now. If that markup was back at 20-25% rather than 70-75%. Do you know sort of what kind of difference that would make in the, in the take-home pay of, of the average American or in the sort of average standard of living of Americans? So, so we have a series of ideas in this recent book that I wrote, which all are aimed at dealing with different aspects of market power. So one aspect is this corporate market power aspect that we were just talking about. But there's also... Uh, we argue in the book ways in which just the ownership patterns of assets themselves create market power, which isn't measured by those standard metrics. But if you put those things all together, we argue that eliminating all of these would double the median income in developed countries. So yes, it's on the same order of magnitude. It's the same order describing. of magnitude. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, interesting. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. So when we're thinking about how to deal with monopolies, it seems to me that there's sort of different approaches to it that actually track back relatively straightforwardly to a sort of pretty nice categorization you have in the book, right? So one attitude is to say, you know what, we just have to let the market do completely what it wants. And perhaps the actual problem is that there's too much regulation that makes it hard for new companies to come in and compete with those monopolies. So what we need is just sort of more, quote-unquote, neoliberal economics. 
there's a different response, which is, well, look, I mean, if there's these monopolies and so on, then perhaps we have to react by constraining what the market can do. And one of those things is to say, well, if there's a natural monopoly in some kind of area, then we should probably nationalize it. How does your solution differ from both of those positions? Well, I think that the fundamental aspect of our solution is that it's anti-authoritarian in all forms. And what I mean by that is that we agree with the rights view that it's government and centralized authorities that are problematic, but we think that they ignore the most problematic features of those authorities, which is things like some contracts that they enforce and the property rights that they enforce. Those are things we take for granted. We don't think of them as government interventions, but of course they're the most important interventions that shape the economy that we live in. And that by creating property regimes, by creating simple antitrust protections that diffuse that authority, rather than by creating centralized government bureaucracies that are gonna control industries and regulate them, that's the best way to diffuse authority. Because if you just put a government regulator in charge, you trade one form of concentrated power for another form of concentrated monopoly power. And that is inherently inegalitarian. What we need to do is come up with rules of the game that decentralize authority and that rely on the diverse but ultimately equal capabilities of every citizen to guide the economy rather than trusting in either corporate authorities or government regulatory authorities. That sounds lovely. I have no idea what that would look like. Give me some examples. So we have an example for the management of assets where we have a new regime of property where everyone would pay a tax on all the assets that they own, but that tax would be based on a self-assessed value of the property. And anyone could take the asset from the current asset holder at that self-assessed value. So let me give you the example of radio spectrum. So the radio spectrum has traditionally been used to broadcast television, to broadcast radio, but now increasingly people are listening to podcasts like this one over Wi-Fi or their 5G services. And two failed approaches to this are on the one hand, the neoliberal approach of just handing out the spectrum or auctioning it off and then assuming the market will take care of things. Another failed approach was the direct regulatory approach, which said the government is going to figure out what's the best use of each part of the spectrum and reallocate it in the public interest. Both of those approaches gave authority to a concentrated and static group of bureaucrats, whether within the big companies that won that initial auction or whether within the FCC in the United States or whatever the Ofcom here in Britain. So there's two ideas in this, and one is more intuitive than the other. I mean, I think yeah. we intuitively understand the problems of a command economy and so on, and so why it is hard for the government to effectively decide who should be allowed to use which part of the spectrum is sort of straightforward, right? Yeah, I think the other bit is harder to understand, right? So we have this common good, which is this sort of radio spectrum. We auction it off to the highest bidder. We actually, let's say in this idealized example, then use that money to rebate it to lots of ordinary citizens so everybody gets something out of it. That seems like a pretty good system, right? I mean, ordinary citizens have gotten something out of it. We've actually treated this as a common resource and recognized that means that each citizen should get an equal share in it. You know, poor people will profit a lot from that. Sounds pretty good. So what's the problem with it? So the trouble is, take 
the example that we were just using of initially allocating to people who are doing over-the-air broadcasts, radio, television, et cetera. The problem is, initially, those might be good uses for the assets. And they require that the assets be sliced up in a particular way. It turns out that radio signals interfere with each other in a certain pattern. So you can have one radio station over here, another radio station over there, and they can coexist with each other. But if you want to use Wi-Fi in that same area, you have to clear out a whole bunch of those radio stations, and the whole pattern of use has to change. Now, in an idealized notion of a market, that would just happen naturally. People would just find each other, make better transactions. Everything would work its way out. But that's not what happens in real markets. We know that from, for example, anytime you try to develop a development in some part of the city and you have to buy a bunch of houses, you can't just negotiate with all of those people. They'll take you to the cleaners. The same thing happens with trying to redevelop radio spectrum. So the problem in a sort of simplistic way is where we assume for efficient markets that there's perfect mutual information and, and another set of conditions, and presumably not even that exists in this situation, right? So you yeah. need to be able to find all these different companies that want to use Wi-Fi and figure out, you know, which range of uh, the frequency they would use and so on. And just coordinating that interaction between seven or eight market participants is not going to happen because there's not enough mutual knowledge. Well, that- it's, not, it's not just that. It's the fact that all of the current owners have a monopoly on that piece of property. And they know that they can extract from who's ever trying to redevelop it so much of the value associated with that redevelopment. And their attempt to do that ends up taking more of the pie than there is to be taken and often shutting down that project, or if it doesn't shut it down, leading to years of endless delay. And precisely to address this problem, to address this holdout problem, the US government spent about seven years running an auction for the radio spectrum to try to reallocate it. And in the end, it failed because someone was smart enough to see that if they bought up a bunch of the relevant spectrum, that they could undermine the auction itself. And so what happens is initially you auction, things work well for a while, but pretty quickly, the property system itself, the monopoly that it gives people over assets and the inability to quickly reallocate those to better uses creates rigidity. And eventually, it also creates huge inequality because just through random chance, things accumulate into some hands, and then that just gets reinforced over time. And it's that rigidity that the reformers of the 19th century who tried to break up feudalism were trying to deal with. And it's that rigidity that we have to try to break up today. All right. So the way to put this, I think, in intuitively non-economic terms, right, is it's 1980. We auction this stuff off. It makes a lot of sense given the economic circumstances of 1980 and technological kinds of possibilities. Ten years later, that's no longer the case. But since we've auctioned off sort of permanent property rights, it's really hard for us to basically do this coordination game all over again. So it sounds like what would be great is if every 10 years or every five years or every year or whatever time interval, we ran a new auction. Is that your solution? Yeah, so that is probably better than the permanent property rights, but it's not perfect. It's not close to perfect. And the reason is that on the one hand, if people know that after three or five years or whatever, they lose their lease, at some point they lose all incentive to invest in improving Mm. that property. Because why would I start up a radio station and so on if I don't know that I'm actually going to be able to afford 
having the bandwidth in order to broadcast my signal five years down the Exactly. Line. So you end up being a lame duck for half of the time that you're owning that license. And on the other hand, if an innovative use comes along three years into that, we have to wait three years for the rigidity of the monopoly to clear itself out. So for both of those reasons, it's not an ideal solution. The ideal solution is one in which every year there's a liquid price so that at any time someone can buy those assets out. But on the other hand, that we achieve that in a way that doesn't expropriate all the investment made by the current owners. And that's precisely what the regime that I described does. It puts a tax on that investment, but it puts a tax that's not anywhere close to the 100% that you get after those three years when your licenses expire. Now I'm lost. Explain to me what the system looks like. Yeah. So again, the way that it works is that every year, every owner of a piece of spectrum, let's say, would put a price on that piece of spectrum, pay a tax on that price that they put on, and they have to stand ready to sell the spectrum at the price that they assess. And just to be clear, the tax that you're talking about depends on what value you say. Right, because otherwise I could say it's, you know, one gazillion dollars because I want to have security in this property, right? I don't want to have to sell it. So I just give a hugely inflated price and nobody is ever going to buy it off me, right? But that doesn't work in the system because the tax I pay is dependent not on some objective assessment, but on the price that I myself stipulate. So if I stipulate too high a price... I'm going to have to pay humongous taxes, so, I, so I'm not going to do that. Right. Is that, is that. right. So absent the tax, if you had to set a price, you'd set it at that monopoly price we were talking about. What you think someone who's coming along to buy the thing might be willing to pay you. But if you have a tax, you have to think, well, it's not just the advantage that I get by setting a higher price, it's the disadvantage of the higher tax. And in particular, if the tax rate is set at the rate at which the property turns over, the rate at which spectrum gets sold from one use to a next, then those two things exactly cancel each other out. Because that chance that you get a better price by setting a higher price is exactly offset by the additional tax you have to pay if you set a higher price. Now, you don't want to just apply that to the radio spectrum. You think that this basic principle, which you've explained over the last 10 or so minutes, could be applied in all kinds of areas, including, and let's just stick to that for now, sort of all kinds of areas of the economy, right? So you think that should apply to our houses and apartments, I don't know, perhaps our clothes. I mean, what would this look like? Well, look, I, I want to start with things like spectrum, like intellectual property and so forth that are especially disproportionately owned by wealthy people and corporations and would raise revenue that could be distributed to the rest of the population. However, Eventually, I think the system will be most effective if it's applied to all forms of wealth, not just to those most disproportionately owned by the wealthy, because then it will generate a far larger income. Actually, we calculate enough to pay every family of four about $24,000 as a basic income. So there you're already increasing income by about 50% for median household. That's one reason. But more importantly, from the perspective of this theory, it would ensure that we can use assets much more efficiently. They recently on the radio interviewed the person who's running this project to build a supersonic train from San Francisco to LA. Mm -hmm. And he said that by far the biggest problem he faced was getting the right of way. Mm -hmm. Because there's hundreds, maybe even thousands of individual plots of land he'd have to buy. If there was a liquid price on all those plots of lands at all the time, that he could just buy them, 
it would be far easier to implement technological wonders like that, and it would accelerate the growth of the economy. So I have a few reactions to that. The first is that I absolutely see how that could work relatively well in highly technical areas where the people who administer this are thinking very hard about this anyway, so it doesn't hugely raise transaction costs. And it doesn't sort of affect the lives of everyday people all the time. But when I start thinking about what this would mean for people's houses, for example, I start to get a little bit more skeptical for two reasons. First of all, because a lot of the value that people see in owning a home is the sense of security that you might have had a connection to this house or this piece of land for a very long time. Perhaps your grandparents, great-grandparents lived there. But even if that's not the case, that you can plan for the rest of your life in a meaningful way. That this is where I'm going to raise my children. This is where I'm going to go and retire. This is where I'm going to stay as long as I am able to choose to. So I agree with you that private property is a social contract, right? I mean, we decide to create in that kind of way. But there seem to be some compelling normative reasons to give people that form of private property in the places where they get to live, because it's so important to many people to have that stability, to not think, oh, perhaps next year I might have to move. In fact, one of the great problems of a housing crisis in a place like the United States, where you don't have good rental protections, is that unless you own a home, the landlord can just jack up the price of your rent tomorrow, right? You have a one-year contract, and by the time that runs out, he can just double the price, essentially forcing you out. And so it really taxes people to have that sense of insecurity. And it sounds like rather than making people more secure, in the housing tenure, this proposal actually would make people a lot less secure. So that's one sort of worry. And, and the other worry, which is related, you know, if I think of my mom, who thankfully doesn't listen to this podcast, I mean, the task of having to figure out what the right price for her house is in such a way that, you know, she doesn't wind up paying an absurd amount of tax on it but also it's not likely to get scooped up. I mean, one way of putting it is a huge transaction cost. You're now forcing individuals to go through this process about at least the house and perhaps lots of others of their possession every year. That's just a huge amount of time that people are going to have to spend. It's also going to be tremendous stress. So doesn't that make this proposal smart and interesting as it is, pretty inapplicable to objects that are important to average people in their everyday lives. So I think that that's the first reaction that lots of people have. But I think if you think through the logic of it, that's not actually how it would work. So let me take the example of the issue of stability. So as you very rightly pointed out, in our societies at present, especially in the United States, wealth buys stability. In the world that I'm describing, you can also easily buy stability by paying a higher price. If you set a higher price for your house, if you set a price that's twice, three times its, quote, market value, unquote, then your house is very, very unlikely to get taken in, the, in that situation. First of all, I think there's a difference between unlikely and it can't, right? Well, so but, it's still the case that if you have a charming piece of property somewhere, you can put it at twice or three times what you think the fair market value is. And A, that means that you have to pay a lot in tax, which may be a problem in itself, well, right? It may no longer be, yeah. be affordable. But B, you still don't know whether, you know, some billionaire happens to be driving down 
the street and falls in love with your particular house and tomorrow they're going to bid on it. And I know you have the idea that, you know, they can't force you to move out tomorrow. There might be a three-month transition period, but it still actually gives more power to really rich people in society because if they want that particular property right now, it might be able to say, you know what, you offer me $20 million for my charming house where the fair market value is 500000 I'd rather live my life here. I'm going to say no. In the new system, you can't do that. Yeah. So the, the first thing I would say is that the way that the taxes are set you should be delighted when someone comes along and does that because the optimal thing for you to do in the system is to set the price above what you'd be willing to accept for the house. And in fact, most of the time, if some rich person comes along and offers you some huge amount of money for your house under the present system where you can always refuse, you're thrilled by that. And, you know, some of the time people actually, much of the time people actually do take offers like that. Under this system, you would only be unhappy with that if you'd set a price that's below what you'd be willing to accept. And in fact, the incentives are such that you have an, you want to set the price above what you're willing to accept. But the other thing that I think is really important to keep in mind is that, as I mentioned, at present, the poor have unstable lives, especially in a place like the United States where you have a lot of poverty. They rent or they are taking huge loans to buy their house. And they're underwater often in those loans. And small fluctuations in their lives can force them to leave their homes. There's a huge amount of evidence of that happening to poor people. That doesn't happen to rich people under our current system. Under the system I'm describing, because we would tax the stability of the rich, we would tax rich people who hoard assets that are worth a ton of money to everyone else, and we redistribute that, there might be some of what you're describing for very rich people on their second homes, absolutely. But as for less well-off people, they'd be receiving a social dividend of about $24,000. And the market value of a median family's home is about $1,500,000. So even if they overpriced it 10x, which makes it vanishingly unlikely that their property is going to be taken, still they would be receiving $10,000 in a social dividend. Now, you say it's just very unlikely. It's not certain that they won't have it taken. It's not certain that they won't have it taken under the current system. Thousands of people every year, maybe even more than that, get their houses taken by eminent domain. Hundreds of thousands get their houses destroyed by natural disasters. Many more than that get foreclosed upon every year. Uh, there is actually quite a high likelihood under our present arrangement that even if you're the owner of something that you lose it. Hmm. And under this system, rather than the wealthy affording stability and the poor being unable to afford it, being forced to be renters, being forced to get into foreclosures, instead here, everyone gets an equal chance to buy the stability that they want in their lives while having the opportunity to access goods that everybody else currently holds. To put it cynically, though, isn't it the case that, you know, at the moment we have a system in which the rich have stability and the poor have, have huge instability, especially poor renters, I think, in the United States. And instead of figuring out how we can provide greater stability to everybody, we're saying, well, let's give a little bit of instability to everybody. No, I don't think that's true because under the system, as I pointed out, you can afford as much stability as you care to afford under this system. But the rich are taxed on the stability that they have. And they, if they want to spend all their money, you know, charging a really high price for that, they can't. That's fine. It'll just bleed their money away from them and redistribute it to everyone else so everyone else can afford more stability. So what it does is really not 
create more instability for everyone. What it really does is very much what a carbon tax does. Look, putting a carbon tax on everybody forces everybody to think about how much carbon they're consuming. So you might say, like you said a little bit earlier in the conversation, wouldn't that be this terrible cognitive burden on people? Who wants to have to think about how much carbon they're consuming? It sounds like such a hard problem. Now, in fact, we know that if you had a carbon tax, all sorts of companies would take care of paying that tax and whatever. So the burden wouldn't mostly fall on individuals. And I think something would very very similar would happen in this system. But the real benefit of the carbon tax... may have just tax, convinced me that the carbon tax is a bad idea, but, but, but that's not what you're trying to do. So. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is that things get taken care of by the system and so forth. But more, more importantly, look, the thing that a carbon tax does is it says, rather than the cost of everybody else polluting falling on me, the cost of my polluting should fall on me. And unless I'm more than an average polluter in the economy, that's not going to cost me more than the cost of everyone else's pollution falling on me, right? It'll actually cost me less. But I have the ability to actually reduce my carbon consumption. And here too, I can choose how much stability I want. If I want a lot of stability that keeps things away from people, I can pay for that. Hmm. But why should the cost of everybody else hoarding their assets fall on me so I don't have the chance to have opportunities? Here we equalize that and give everybody the chance to mitigate the harms they're creating for others by hoarding assets. So I want to draw that back to what motivates some of these proposals yeah. in your mind. Because there's sort of one, one set of ways to deal with, you know, this fascinating set of proposals and ideas, which I think is really intellectually generative, is to think about well, what would the system actually look like and what would the sort of ways in which the system might be screwed up be. And I think in a way it's an important but also slightly unfair way of engaging with it. One of the things, speaking of Uber, which I find fascinating is that we're hyper aware of all of the ways in which Uber creates a screwed up market. And I think it does. But we just take for granted that we shouldn't worry about the even more screwed up market that taxi licenses and so on created, right? As we're seeing with Mr. Michael Cohen and some of yeah. his advances in the cab license <laughs> business, right? You know, I'm not convinced that there wouldn't be all kinds of screwed up effects of some of the proposals you're talking about. But to be fair, there's all kinds of screwed up effects of the system we have at the moment. And if your system also has bigger benefits, perhaps. But let me draw it back to not the sort of details of how is this operating, is there this or that problem, but some of the macro view, right? Because you're saying that this is motivated in a certain kind of way as a way of dealing in part with populism and more, more broadly with the failure of technocratic elites. And when I listen to this, again, when it comes back to the radio spectrum, okay, perhaps the FCC can still use some of those ideas and somehow implement it and you don't need, you know, 60 senators and all of those things in order to implement it. When I think of, you know, the level where it goes down to much of our economic life, I just think, how are we ever going to get there? How are we going to build the will for the massive redistribution that this entails? And even more broadly, how are we going to build the will of people to come to understand this pretty complex scheme and trust that whichever technocrat is in charge of setting it up and implementing it is actually going to have their interests at heart rather than being special dealing? I mean, isn't the fact that we now have such lack of trust in elites and technocrats doesn't that actually mean that that bird has sailed, that we'll never be able to get the popular will to try a system which requires such deep trust in a pretty technocratic scheme. I think the thing that has most amazed me about talking to people about this book is, you know, I thought it was a book that I hoped would reach a popular audience. 
but that was just a hope. What's turned out to be the case is that it actually speaks to a broader audience much better than it speaks to economists and technocrats. People who are young, people who have less knowledge in detail about the existing institutions we have in our society, they're the people who find it easiest to understand and get on board with this vision. Because it's fundamentally, in its own way, a populist vision. It's a vision that, while you say the system is complex, I don't think it's complex. I actually think it's very simple. It's just not what we're used to. In many ways, it's much simpler than the current system that we have, which is Byzantine and screwed up and complex and detailed in all sorts of ways. And so I think that ultimately, this is the sort of a system that can and in some ways already is capturing the imagination of a new generation. And as that new generation comes up, a generation that's used to Uber, a generation that's used to Airbnb, not so attached to possessions, I think that it will capture their imagination and not rely on technocrats because the rules are actually quite simple. You know, you think about Obamacare, that, the rules are so complicated. There's no way in a radio interview, I, or, or even in seven radio interviews, mm. I could tell you how Obamacare works. And yet that's enough like our current system that people were okay with it in some way. But this system is actually very simple. It's just very surprising. So let's go beyond the, the question of simplicity versus complexity. I mean, you know, you write in your book, and I make a very similar set of arguments in my book, that a lot of the populism is driven by a fear of loss, that it's a fear of loss of economic status, a fear of loss of cultural status, and all of those kinds of things. How could we advocate for this scheme without triggering massive fear of loss? Like, how do we actually go from a fascinating book, which I urge everybody to read, to political reality? Is it a big political campaign in which, you know, a 2020 Democratic presidential contender calls for this on a massive scale? Is it an, a conspiracy of elites who somehow get together and do this? I mean, how do we do it practically? And in doing so, how do we manage the massive fear of loss, which actually drove the rise of populism in the first place? I think that there's some things that elites can do, but for the most part, for this book, I, I'm really interested in talking to bottom-up entrepreneurs, people who can really experiment with things. We have a new voting system in here that we're using for polling right now, and that we want to use for rating Uber drivers and online ratings for products and so forth. And I think once people see what an effective means that is to gather opinion, and it starts to be viewed as useful, people will demand it in their politics. I think that I want elites to start experimenting, like the FCC spectrum, things like that that we talk about. But I want people to also have it on cryptocurrencies, have it in different areas that will show up in their lives. And when they see that these concerns about stability are not really justified, that actually you can adjust for things and people can get used to it, if they see it in their massive multiplayer online role-playing games, if it gets used in environments mm. like that, people will come to see that that's a better way of organizing things. And then it will just become natural to people. I don't view this as something that's just about a direct political campaign. I view it as being a generational project of experimentation that yields immediate rewards, but that also builds a sense of hope in people that there's a better way of doing things and a sense of understanding of what that better way of doing things is. And I think that that's how we build a new culture around this. That's an exciting generational project. In closing this conversation, what do you think the economic demands are that 
an inspiring, convincing Democratic candidate should make in 2020? I think that these antitrust issues of enforcing against anti-competitive employers, we didn't talk about it, but I think there's a huge problem of institutional investors like BlackRock's State Street Vanguard and the power that they have in the economy, enforcing against them, trying to get a better bargain for the people who generate data in the tech economy, who are, I would argue are really workers, building a data labor movement. These are things that are a good agenda in the near term. And then beginning to paint a vision of those as examples of the way in which true markets can be liberating, not implementing these broader ideas, that's, that's too, too hard and problematic and, and risky and so forth, but beginning to build a vision of that for people and then experimenting with some of these other things. I think that's a great agenda that we can have in the near term and that would pay enough dividends to return the trust of the public in the near term. It, it's not enough to double the median income, but it is maybe enough to raise it by 10%. And raising it by 10% would be enough for four years of a candidate to pay back the public's trust and begin building the hope that's needed for these broader reforms to be possible in 10 years, 15 years. Then, well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. Take the wonderful intro and outro music that producer John has selected for us and make it the first dance at your wedding. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.